Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. We are powered by the Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. This podcast is our eddy in the rushing waters of local journalism. We are glad that you're taking some of your time to listen to us chat with the people who shape our local community. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Remax Key Properties, a family-owned, full-service real estate brokerage specializing in residential, luxury, commercial, new construction, and ranch and land properties. Their new state-of-the-art facility at 42 Greenwood Avenue is a modern, collaborative space and the new home of the Ben Don't Break podcast recording studio. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, publisher of The Source Weekly. Joining me now is the incredibly talented artist, T-Fly, a Ben-based artist and illustrator, T-Fly has illustrated Source Weekly covers over the past two decades. She is also the author of a new book, So You Have a Little Brain Cloud, uh, An Illustrated Journey Exploring Mental Illness. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's always nice to talk with you. Yeah. Well, I um, we have to give special kudos because it's Thanksgiving week and T-Fly was good enough to come in here on super short notice. and. Uh, it's good for you to be here. Yeah, thanks. So um, just more starting out for with origin stories. I always like to, oh, yeah. especially when I'm talking to an artist, like, when do you know? When do you, when, when do you remember when you yeah. felt like, like an artist? I'm an artist. You, I'm not just a kid with a crayon here. Yeah. I, I'm doing something. You know? I, um, it took a long time. It took a long time to feel that way. Mm -hmm. And then once I did, I started looking back and realized, oh, I just always was that way. Yeah. You know, people will tell you that you're different all the time if you are. And, um, (laughs) growing up, they always told me how I was different. I didn't know how they're different in a lot of ways, but that is a way that I've learned even just in the last five or six years that's something really unique about me that I just looked at the world a little differently that I just constantly was processing. I think that's what a lot of artists do, right? Is you look at the world and then you're just processing it with crayons or markers or music or whatever. And I just naturally did that, um, from a very young age. Well, your, your art, um, and I don't, everybody has a different perspective, but mine is that it's very, um, flamboyant you know there's you know things are large you know the you just did a great exhibition at scale house and uh i know most of your art from when we uh interact around covers Mm -hmm. so and those are small they're always 11 by 17s or things like that but then when i got into the studio i was like you know wow look at all look at all this and um, the big puppets and so there also has to be that point where not only do you feel different, but you're, you feel different enough to be just like, uh, I'm going to let this go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like how you worded that. There is a point where you have to embrace and go, cool. Like sometimes I think, um, when people push you to the outside, it's great permission to just be on the outside and there's so much great stuff out there, you know? So I kind of embrace that, um, early on, you I think there's always this like idea of the power of yes, but I think for artists, it's actually the power of no. You actually just start saying no because you would rather spend time with a book or spend time with a movie or spend time making things. And I feel like that's the thing I have in common with my friends who are artists is there's a lot of alone time. And I don't know that people in general are willing to sit in that quiet alone space. I also you know, there's a lot of failing that's involved in being an artist. There's multi levels of failing, but the most um, common one is just in what you're making. You know, you can work on something for 
40 hours and then go, well, that's not it. And that's hard to do. And I, and as a person who used to teach, I saw that in kids. I'd always say, well, you have to keep going. They're like, but it looks so good right now. And I go, I know, I know, just take, take a picture of how it looks good. It might look bad in five hours, but (laughs) you have to be okay with it being bad. Yeah. Um, I interviewed this artist uh, or poet, Matthew Dickman, and he said, when you look back on your old art, you should look back and cringe with love. (laughs) You should never look at your old art and be like, wasn't that amazing? Because The truth is, is that if you are continually working as an artist, you're always going to look back on your old stuff and go, ooh, you know, which in that exhibition that you're talking about, when I set up this room, some of that work in the room, it was like this timeline room. I had 20 years, you know, 20 years ago and I put it up and I was like, you know, some of it I found really interesting. Like Mm -hmm. I don't draw flowers like that at all anymore. Yeah. But some of it I was like, Oh God, am I going to put this up? And I went, yeah, "Yeah, I'm going to put this up because sometimes making art is making things that aren't great and just being okay with that. I always hear that with singers a lot, you know, who are, you know, they're Mm -hmm. well down the road in their careers and they're hitting the road and they're singing that song they wrote when they were 20 and they're 45 now. And trying not to cringe through yes. the process and, yeah. and love the experience all the same. Yeah. Well, you in the, um, I, one of the things that I took away from, um, your exhibition was that, uh, line sleep is medicine. Yeah. Maybe speak a little bit to that because, um, <clears throat> we're certainly in a culture that doesn't really hear a lot of stuff coming out a lot about sleep, but you yes. don't really see a lot of people embracing, oh, I need to sleep, like really sleep. And, um, you know, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have a unique story in that, in that I was diagnosed with severe sleep apnea when I was 34. And um, sleep apnea, it's considered severe if you wake up 30 times an hour. I actually wake up 90 times an hour on average, and I'd stop breathing for up to a minute at a time. So I was also experiencing sleep deprivation. Um, It's because of the structure of my jaw. And it probably, my doctor, my sleep doctor said it probably started when I was 14. So I went 20 years. I never had more than about 20 minutes of REM sleep a night. That was, he said, if I had a good night. Right. Um, And did you know this at the time? Or was it just like you thought you were tossing and turning? Oh, no. I mean, I had no idea that I huh. wasn't sleeping, yeah. you know, and, and it started when I was about 14 and I'd go to sleepovers or school trips where we stayed over. Um, oh boy, no one wanted to share a room with me right, because yeah. of the snoring. But I would, I remember really specifically at that time in my early teen years, my friends would wake me up and they'd say, stop, you're snoring. And I'm like, I wasn't even asleep. What are you talking about? I wasn't yeah. even asleep. And I thought I was still conscious and I wasn't. And so that was a sign of it. I went 20 years um, sleep deprived and you can do a lot when you're sleep deprived <laughs> and you would be surprised. And and yeah. now I only know what that feels like because I've had the medicine of the CPAP machine. I've had treatment, oh, you know, okay. so really like starting to have sleep. Um, I've now had the CPAP machine for 14 years, so I still haven't slept as long as I didn't sleep. That's kind of <laughs> interesting to me. I want to see because... You know, the first five years, I would tell you, this saved my life. It changed me. But even now, like 14 years later, I'm still learning more about sleep. Yeah. Sleep, I view it now as a basic human need. I feel like we need to talk about it the way we talk about water, the way we talk about food and having access to that. If someone's um, experiencing houselessness and they're on the street, 
not having good sleep is going to affect their overall well-being. Sure, it's going to sure. keep them from moving into that next step and trying to get housed if that's what they're yeah. trying to do. And we don't talk about sleep like that. We live in this culture of hustle, capitalism, yeah. go, right? Yeah, sleep when you're dead. Sleep when you're dead. Yeah. yeah. Time is money. Yeah. Right. And I will tell you the number one thing that has made me stable and healthy and living a good life is sleep and uh, not even just sleep, but resting, you know, like resting can look like so many things. It can look like gardening. It can look like reading. Mm -hmm. It can look like lying in the grass and having a book of poetry, like just these times to just stop, you know, even like turning the radio off or turning the TV off or just sitting in silence. We don't let ourselves just rest and yeah. take a take a beat and take a minute. And so for me, I, I went on this like incredible journey of understanding that sleep is absolutely so essential to your well-being. And I think about it too sometimes in an evolutionary standpoint. CPAP machines became available in 1991. I probably started experiencing um, sleep apnea in 1989. In when I got diagnosed, it was 2006 or 2008. And I could not get into a sleep doctor. It took me 18 months to get a referral to go to a sleep doctor. Um, when I did get to the sleep Why doctor, was that? Um, no doctor would give me a referral. They thought I was ridiculous for asking. So I was having all these symptoms. One of the things that started happening when I was They just didn't believe you were sleep deprived? No. Just, just you had a bad night going yeah. home. Well, I would go say to a, you know, my doctor, well, I'm experiencing this. I would wake up in the mornings and throw up. Like I was not pregnant. There's yeah. not, there's not a lot right. of reasons you wake up in the morning and throw up <clears> unless you're hungover or pregnant or something. And I would, that was just kind of standard for me. And I would say to them over and over, I think it might be sleep apnea. I actually had one doctor, um, look at me and go, no. And cause I said, would you give me a referral to the sleep clinic? And he went, no. And I was like, wow. So I the Crazy. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you how yeah. I got the referral was through my psychologist at the time. I kept saying to her, she kept putting me on medications and they were just not working. She yeah. was misdiagnosing me is what was happening. And she was trying to knock you out. Yeah. I mean, she was yeah. putting me, well, she was putting me on antidepressants when I was undiagnosed oh, okay. bipolar. Yeah. So that was really what the problem was. So she had misdiagnosed me and kind of put me on these medications that weren't working. So I would stop taking them and she'd get really, you know, she'd get upset yeah, and say, you can't just stop taking them. And so I asked her about um, the sleep, going to the sleep clinic, and she would send me to see these other doctors who were, well, it could be this, it could be this, it could be your endocrine system, it could be whatever. And every one of those doctors would say no to the sleep clinic, say whatever, they're the specialist in, I didn't have that. That's what specialists I learn are really good at. They're really good at telling you <laughs> when it's not what they know. I can't believe that. I mean... I just can't believe what, what is the harm in referring someone well, so to a sleep? Is, is there just like some multi-year waiting list or something like precious spot in the I, sleep clinic? I mean, this is what I think. I don't know because yeah. what I ultimately said to my therapist is she said to me, you're just looking for an excuse. And I said, I'm not looking for an excuse. And I said, and I actually, what I said to her, my exact words, I said, what's it to you? Yeah. I said, what's it matter? I pay for the testing. I pay the co-pays. I pay the, yeah. right. What does it matter to you? Like I said, send me, prove me wrong. I yes. said, if I'm wrong, I will take any medication you give me. And she went, okay. And she wrote it. And sure enough, it was exactly what I said it was. And when I went back to her for our last meeting, um, cause she's the referring doctor, she got the report. She said, 
oh, I feel bad. Yeah. And I said, you should. <laughs> I shouldn't have to get angry to get treatment. Right. Or consume all these medications that, yeah. you know, you were experimenting with. And that I'm telling you are not working for <laughs> right. me. And instead you're telling me I'm not taking them long enough. Yeah. I'm not taking them properly. There's a page in my book. It says, nobody understands you better than you understand yourself. I'm trying to understand a little bit more about the sleep apnea part yeah. because when this is going on, I mean, you've, you know, there were p- periods where you, you couldn't have slept more, you know, than a couple moments over many days. I mean, I can tell mm-hmm. you if that happens to me one night, yeah. I, I'm, I'm out of my mind, yeah. you know? And yeah. so how is it that you can go through such a prolonged period and still be functional? Yeah. <laughs> was still I functional? create art I mean, at least? <laughs> yes, I could still create art, but was I functional? It's a, it's a great yeah. question. Cause you know, I used to go home whatever time of day I got home, uh, I would go to bed. So if it was three o'clock in the afternoon, I'd get in yeah. bed. If it was six o'clock, I'd get in bed. And sometimes I'd get out of bed to go do stuff, but rarely, um, the dysfunction really comes from like the inability to do kind of basic things. There's a lot of shame, um, fatigue, you know, I think a well, lot people, of, you gotta have people just, you gotta think you're being lazy or absolutely. You know, there's that kind of, it's, it's invisible thing. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it I internalized is just, I'm a bad person or I'm just annoying or I'm just, you know, cause relationships were hard to sustain. Yeah. Um, certainly, you know, uh, so one of the things like thinking about how new the science is around sleep, they just came out with a study, um, this past spring around students, college students. And for mm. every hour less than the seven to nine, um, their GPA goes down 0.1. Wow. So when I go to my college GPA and I add 0.8, it's a great GPA. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you were, <laughs> you know, you were achieving above your sleep I, level. I, I was, well, right. um, there's a, and it's so interesting to look back on my life through this lens. Cause there was like a time in high school where my mom went to parent teacher conference and she talked to one of my teachers, I think it was my history teacher. And he was going on and on about how I was his favorite student and he loved having me in class. And my mom said, well, then why is she getting a C? And he said, well, I was going to ask you that. Like, I have no idea, (laughs) you know? And my mom said this to my dad who didn't go uh, to these teacher conferences. She said, you know, your brother got straight A's but you get C's, B's, C's, and D's, and your teachers love you, and they talk about you in a way that nobody talked about your brother when mm-hmm. he got straight A's. And I look at that, and I go, right, because I was just, you know, I, I just feel like my whole life was underwater yeah. when I look back on it, and I, and I was just treading water. And so I was doing, you know, using the talents and the gifts that I have, which is like being creative and artistic for people to see me, because I was not fitting into yeah. the academic world. I wasn't fitting anywhere into the systems, frankly, because I was too tired yeah. <laughs> to do it. And there was no, um, it was so invisible, you know? And so you, like I said, you just internalize it. And now I look back on those years and I have so much more forgiveness for myself. I have like a deep love and forgiveness for myself that I did not have even 10 sure. years ago. How, um, I mean, people don't like to think about these divergent paths, but, Mm. you know, given what you were going through, you were a a very prolific artist and um, accomplished and, you know, I'm a big fan or we we wouldn't be sitting here. (laughs) Um, So it it did have some, you did turn it into something, you know, something positive. Um, Maybe how how does that happen? 
That's a, it's a great question. I think a lot of it is that I was given those tools so early. Like when you asked, when did I start? My mom really encouraged me to always draw and paint and, and um, play with art. I grew up three hours from New York City and an hour and a half from Boston. So it was really common for me to take a day off of school, for my mom to take me out of school for the day to go to the MoMA or to go see a Broadway play or go. So I had this language, you know, I really look at art as a language, a way that we speak to one another. And because I was so comfortable with that language, I always had these tools to go to. You know, um, I'll always say, you know, music can be your best friend. Like when you're lonely in a lonely place, a song can come on and suddenly you're not alone. Like art has this incredible way to um, be cathartic for the artist, but also cathartic for the audience, which is like this double extra whammy great thing it does, you know. And so I always went to art because it was soothing and um, it helped me. And I just kind of did focus on it's so interesting because I do think that my art has this like almost overwhelming amount of joy in it sometimes well you can see it in the number of little things yeah. when you look at it there's this a gazillion little yeah. smiling bugs or you yeah. know flowers or you know there's always and the- it's and I think it is because I was underwater for so long I was just trying to stay afloat you know I can't imagine painting something or drawing something that is painful. And I think that's because so much of that 20 years of my life was a big bulk of my life um, was painful. So I was just trying to find joy and trying to stay afloat and trying to just hold on to something. Has your, um, I mean, it's, it's great that you're, you've gotten some treatment and you're getting some sleep now. How is, how has that affected your art now that you're, you know, probably a lot, more level-headed, more yeah. clear-headed, <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Um, how is that? That's a great question. I think I'm more willing to make art for myself now than uh-huh. for survival. Like, um, especially, like, I, I don't do a lot of graphic design work anymore, a lot of um, that kind of work anymore, because I found that that all takes my energy. Even teaching art takes the energy away from the art. Mm -hmm. And now because I'm able to kind of work part-time and sustain jobs that don't take that energy from me, I just kind of now put it all um, into the work that I think is more, more deeply personal. And I'm a little able more to talk directly about what's going on. I don't feel, um, like, it's so interesting at that show, you know, I had this piece up about the sleep apnea and it talks about being bipolar and, um, and people would say like, wow, do you play? That was amazing. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm, and then I go, oh yeah, I guess that's kind of a deep thing to share, <laughs> right? you know, but yeah. now it doesn't feel There's not a lot way. of people waving a bipolar flag. There's not a lot you know, of like, <laughs> I identify. <laughs> I know <Yeah>. there's not. <laughs> and it's, and I was like, right. But that is one of the things that the sleep has done for me is made me feel more stable yeah. to be safe in myself and to share these things. And also because I went through this ridiculous struggle just to get diagnosed, you know, um, I, it's made me really aware of people in the world who live with invisible disabilities yeah. and sometimes that are invisible to themselves. Right. Well, the thing that stands out to me about your story is listening to it right now is that, you know, even though you were in that condition, you were a strong advocate for yourself. Yeah. I mean, when you were in there with, you know, 
doctors are experts. Those they're those people that are in that seat across from you are, you know, acting in your best interest or that's your belief. And um, that's the thing that strikes me is that people, you know, ask the questions, you know, Mm -hmm. like, why am I taking this? Why do you think this is, you know, and the fact that you were able to have the courage to go, you know, this is not working for me, where I think a lot of people would just say, well, this is what I was told to take. So I'm taking this and um, I'll see you in a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I think that's the artist part too, which is the deep curiosity. Yeah. And, and also the toolbox, you know, Um, like I was given this great toolbox of expression and it doesn't stop necessarily with just the art. (laughs) Um, I'm very, I've always kind of been that way too, as a kid is very much like, what is happening here and why are we doing this? You know? So one of the things that the school I went to was private school is an old new England private school. Mm -hmm. I always say it's older than the state of Oregon. (laughs) Emily Dickinson's brother went to my school, you know, and it was like five hours of homework. You know, you're going to school with kids who are in the 1%. It's mm. this highly competitive, academic, rigorous world. Right. When I got to college, it was the easiest thing I did. Like there was a kid on my floor. <laughs> he was flunking out at Christmas time, my freshman year. And I remember looking at him being like, you don't even have to do homework every day. <laughs> like I was living my best life, you know, because I'd just gone right. from this rigorous academic world. So there was always this feeling that I was behind because I was in that world. And um, I came from a working class family. My dad was a truck driver. He was going to school with kids whose dad were were surgeons. And they just could not understand that my dad was a truck driver. Like that would baffle them. (laughs) And, you know, so you just learn a lot about how kind of capitalism and patriarchy, like for lack of a better word, I wouldn't have said it back then, but how this kind of world works of this inherent wealth and academia and they go hand in hand. So I've learned at an early age, like, Oh, not everyone's gifted the same thing. But at that school, my teachers loved me and were invested in every student equally. And so I got this really great set of tools, you know, that helped me advocate. And I do think about that a lot as someone who benefits from affordable housing and like how much I advocate for myself and how difficult it is for people. I have, I have a huge educational privilege, so I feel very confident in being able to do that. And then I think about, you know, how many people don't make it past 40 because they can't advocate to get to the sleep clinic. Well, one, I I was also struck in the, um, I was fortunate to come to the gallery when you were actually there in the bed, bed. you know, and I thought that was just such a really, um, you know, cool and impactful thing. Cause you know, the, the bed was, you know, obviously the icon for, mm-hmm. you know, sleep as medicine. And then you were in there talking to people very openly about your condition. And I'm just wondering like, what did that mean for people who were coming up to you in the gallery? Like, were they sharing, oversharing? I mean, I could imagine yeah. people <laughs> melting down, like, you know, talking yeah. to you. You know, it's funny because um, doing this book, um, it's called So You Have a Little Brain Cloud, A Beginner's Guide to Mental Illness. And I didn't really think about it, but every time I say the title, I'm outing myself, right? Yeah. And so there is a little of that. And so when I started the response of the, the book title or like people seeing I was doing this book or being in the bed, the first response, if if it is someone who's affected by mental illness, is for them to share with me mm-hmm. that they're that either they are affected by mental illness or someone they love is. And they share it immediately. They share 
some really personal things. They share like, oh, I love, you know, especially if it's someone else, they always say it's hard to see them. I love them. I know they try, yeah. right? There's this sadness. And then they always say, I've never talked to anyone else about that. Yeah, yeah. Or I've never told anyone else that. And I think it's really what I've learned is, well, first of all, there's this huge need for them to share yeah. because they share almost immediately. And they share because they feel safe with me because they know I've got mine. They've, you know, so yeah. it's okay. Yeah. We've all got ours. And, um, and then I think, okay, how do you find that in the world? And, and a lot of it is just that most people don't understand what it means to live with mental illness. Even people who do live with mental illness yeah. don't really understand it. And so there's this desire to talk, but there's not a space for it. So it's always like... It's so rare. I mean, there's so many people that are living with it or know somebody who's Mm -hmm, living with it, mm -hmm. but it is exceptionally rare for someone to be sitting up in bed in the middle of a gallery (laughs) going... It's you know, me. hey, I'm part of the tribe. You, should, you know, yeah, I want to make a flag now. <laughs> right. I put my bipolar flag up. You can right. Follow me around, and and I can imagine that they were just very grateful to, you yeah, know, and and also probably want to be in that same space, right? Yeah. Want to be in a space where they can um, sit safe. upright in a room and say, "Hey, I'm good with this," and mm-hmm. you know, maybe I can create this kind of art too yeah. if I, you know, do. Get yeah. some sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <Get> some <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So that's, that's, I mean, I think that was the coolest thing I, I, I found about that gallery and that and the gigantic puppets. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people know your work be- from the, um, Earth environmental Earth, yeah. Earth Day parade. You know, if you're listening, it's <clears throat> T-Fly is the creator of those large puppets and, uh, that have been such a great, make that parade so unique, yeah. you know, or what it's supposed to be. Yeah, you know, you absolutely. see those other uh earth day celebrations around the country and there's usually very similar ones but yours are yeah super artistic thanks yeah yeah the earth guardians i was so lucky it's kind of one of my favorite things living in bend is i get to have these opportunities because i have because the community's not big you can build relationship with people Mm -hmm. and so because i have relationship i can say hey i have this idea and i did that for the environmental center and mike riley was so great he was like i love this you know like the idea of the earth guardians to lead the earth day parade and to be a reminder to just that taking care of the planet is taking care of ourselves. And it's so sweet. Like I think we've done them now for seven years and um, it's so sweet. Every year kids come up and they touch them and they hug them and they listen to the story about them. And it's this lovely little annual way to love the earth. I really feel very lucky living in this community that I get to do things like that. Well, we're kind of at the end of our time. Is there, uh, I know there's a million things I haven't talked about and, you know, I'm making a mental note to have you back in, but, um, what are, what are some things that, you know, you'd like people to know or or take away? Um, well, the first thing I want you to know if you're listening is that however you feel about your life and your body and your health, you're probably right. (laughs) Listen to yourself and Find someone who will listen to you. Know that you're not alone out there trying to figure it out. It takes a long time in our system to do that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Where can people go if they want to check out your work? Um, tfly.com is a great place to start. Um, that's my website and my book's available there. Mm-hmm. And you can listen to me every day from noon to five on 1017. Awesome. If, you, if you're in the Central Oregon area. Um and then, actually, I'm going to have the bed set up at the Bend Health Fair 
oh, in March. Great. Yeah, we just worked that out this uh-huh. week. So the bed will come back out and you can come get in the bed and read the book or That's talk great. to me or do whatever. We can talk yeah. about sleep or mental health. <laughs> I'm full of both of them or art. We uh, also, T-Fly has um, created the little... Uh, character for Winterfest this year, which yeah. we're going to animate and have run around in commercials and oh my god, I'm do excited. fun stuff with him. So thank oh you for gosh, that. Oh gosh, I'm excited to see what you do with that. <laughs> That's exciting. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for being here, Tifa. Yeah, it's been great. You've been listening to the Ben Don't Break podcast, powered by the Source Weekly. To read, hear, and see more of what we do, go to bensource.com.